Good morning, Hope Astoria. Pastor Chris here. I'm so sad and disappointed that I'm not with you yet again. Uh, it's two weeks in a row, um, but as you heard, uh, we're still in the midst of dealing with uh, COVID in our home. Uh, by God's grace, the symptoms have been incredibly mild um, for, from my daughter to now my son and my wife. Um, and so uh, pray for us. We really want to uh, leave our house and and be healthy and not infect anybody. And so, um, yeah, prayers are much appreciated. Uh, but I'm excited to continue our sermon series in the book of James. And I'm going to go to scripture. I'm going to be reading from chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. It says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to, you, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we gather around your word, our prayer is that you would speak to us, meet us. Lord, those that are at home watching, um, those that are present, Lord, gathered, Father, would you meet all of us in these unique times as we gather around your word. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him to us in a transforming way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you are visiting us for the first time, first off, welcome. So glad that you are with us as a church family. Uh, if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, uh, let me give you some context. And I encourage you to go to our website and hear the previous sermons because we have been in quite the journey. And in fact, today is an amazing moment because I've been promising you for a few weeks that we would eventually get to chapter two in this incredible book of the Bible. The reason why we spent so much weeks in the first chapter is because the way James is written, it, it honestly, the best uh, way to describe it, it feels like like stop and go traffic, the way like you speed up and then you stop, speed up and then you stop, because there's so much packed in the first chapter, 
and so many thoughts that are not necessarily connected and flowing from one to another. And so you'll go to a new theme and then another theme, and each one or two verses has so much meat from God's word to us that it was appropriate for us to stop and really reflect and not just breeze by. This letter was written to believers in Jesus, specifically Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish believers that had professed Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one whom God promised would come and deliver uh, the Jewish people, and for that matter, deliver and set free all of humanity. These Jewish believers in Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus, had suffered intense persecution. There had Many of them had to leave their homes and run for their lives, leaving their businesses, their livelihood, all that they knew, in order to follow and pursue Jesus. To them, James is writing one of the oddest things within that context. You know, it, he's, he's teaching people who are essentially like reestablishing themselves. They had a, a way of life. They put their faith in Jesus. Now their whole lives have been disrupted. And now they're kind of replanting their life somewhere else. If anyone uh, listening to this knows what it's like to move uh, from one neighborhood to the next, from one block to the next, or some of you are brave that you've moved from one state to another or another country, and this is now your second home, you know the experience of having to reestablish yourself after being uprooted from a place you called home. To these people, James is almost teaching them how to be human how to actually live in a way that they didn't live before. He's grounding them in some of the most simplistic things. And even though it's kind of jarring, people that are running for their lives and trying to survive in the midst of persecution, yet God through this book does not waste time even in the midst of challenge. It's important for us to know that God will not waste any season of our life. He won't wait for things to get better in order for him to do good inside of us. He won't wait for circumstances to be amicable in order for him to teach us things that he so desperately wants us to know. And at this moment, in the midst of their persecution, their lives being uprooted, God is teaching them through James one of the most essential, pivotal lessons that as we'll see in a moment, what he talks about in these verses actually touches all aspects of our life. This is not just like a cute little Bible study on a theme that what relevance does it have other than just like kind of mentally understanding the concept. No, as we get into this, you're going to see that when it comes to favoritism, this is actually a core essential truth that you and I desperately need to integrate. And in fact, I think many of us are going to discover that so many of the things in our life that we're trying to heal from and grow from actually are offshoots of the sin of favoritism. Let's begin by talking about the Christian ethic of favoritism. You may not have known this, but actually there's a robust body of scripture that deal with this subject throughout the Bible and beginning in one of the most powerful verses, Leviticus 19, verse 11, God begins to tell Moses something that's quite profound. He tells Moses to tell the people, tell the people to be holy, for I am holy. So this is the context. He's saying, 
Moses, tell the people that they should live holy because I am holy. And then he spells out what actually it means for them to live holy. And this is where it gets interesting. It says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely, Leviticus 19.11. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So first off, we see that perhaps... For many of us, this is opening up a can of worms because if you're like me, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, there's the potential that you may have misunderstood holiness similarly to the way I misunderstood it for many years, where I thought holiness was uh, abstaining from certain behaviors and kind of really growing in others that uh, God approved of, kind of staying away from things that say God doesn't approve of those things and growing in certain behaviors that we have clarity on from Scripture God approves of. And to be quite honest, in these verses, it touches on that. Don't steal, don't murder. But it also integrates in holiness. Holiness actually touches issues of justice, how we treat the poor, how we treat the rich, Specifically, look at verse 15. God says, in the context of us being holy because he's holy, he says, you shall do no injustice in court. And he goes on to say, don't bend the rules for the poor person and don't show favoritism to the rich. And so whether someone was rich or poor, essentially God is saying one of the ways that we live out holiness is that we don't show favoritism to either. Now, what was happening in this church that James is writing to is that, unfortunately, partiality invaded the church. There's something deeply troubling happening at this church, thus why James is writing to address the things that he addresses. See, in this church, what is evident is that they had made distinctions between the rich and the poor. And it says that they had become judges with evil thoughts. So to understand what was happening, I think it's important to understand when it says, when you are meeting, when a man comes into your meeting. You see that in verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. See, that word actually has the connotation of synagogue. Let's unpack that. See, verse 2, it says, For of a man wearing a gold ring... And splendid clothes comes into your meeting, and a poor man in filthy clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and then to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So this is all happening in the synagogue, in the gathering place as they are coming to worship. 
Now, you may not be aware of this. I know I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it until I began to study this further. I didn't realize that in synagogues, actually, they did way more than just preaching and teaching and prayer. In fact, the synagogues were a place not only of worship, but also was a place of settling disputes. And also was a place where almsgiving, the distribution of benevolence, happened. So as people were coming to settle disputes, or even as people were coming to receive alms and benevolence, this is the context of what's happening in their gatherings, we read that people that were coming in wearing fine clothing, jewelry, so they had uh, all the vestiges of wealth and power at that time, that they were being given preferential treatment. And yet the poor were utterly being dishonored and disrespected because it says the poor were being, were, were being told not even to have a seat, that you stand over there while we give the seat of prominence and comfort to the rich and powerful person. So could you imagine if this was happening like right now? Imagine right now at Hope Astoria, if the scene was, imagine a really comfortable chair, like the most comfortable chair you could imagine, and someone coming in who looks like they just reek of wealth, fine clothes, jewelry, you, they just look the look. Even though these, in these days and days, people can fake it. You know, there's a lot of poor people that dress up rich, but that's a different story for a different time. But they come in looking like wealth, and imagine we gave them the most comfortable, prominent seat in our gathering. But then someone comes in and their clothes are tattered. They might be dirty. They might even have an odor to themselves. And we tell that person, you stand over there. Or worse yet, you could sit here on the floor by our feet. If you could picture that happening in our setting, as vile as that is, then you're getting a sense of what's happening here and what James is addressing to these people. This is what was happening in this church, in their gatherings. Now, you may think, man, those people are really jacked up. Um, I'm glad James is addressing them. This is good that James is writing to them because this kind of nonsense needs to stop. Someone needs to speak up to these crazy people. This, this is abominable. This is detestable. However, we would be missing a really important point in all of this, and that is that what James is addressing is not just relegated to this church or to this situation, but actually what he's touching upon, I would argue, is essentially the blueprint that we follow when we allow relationships to disintegrate. I remember years ago, I was overseeing this construction project at my previous church, and it was a crash course for me because this is not my profession at all. I'm studying scripture uh, for a living and trying to learn how to teach scripture and disciple people and pastor people, but our church needed somebody to oversee this building project. It was a pretty massive project, several hundred thousand dollars, bunch of contractors. And I very quickly learned how to read architectural renderings. And man, uh, if you know an architect in your life, take them out to coffee. They, those people work hard. 
Um, we have a few in our church, actually. It, it's, it's a crazy process. But in reading the blueprint, I'll never forget, uh, there was a meeting with the Department of Buildings. And they essentially would come to the site, the location, and they would walk through the entire building with their blueprints. And essentially, the building as it stood had to match up the blueprint. And anywhere the building violated or deviated from the blueprint, that became an issue we had to address. Otherwise, we would be fined. The, 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 the moral of the story, essentially, at that what, what was guiding that kind of encounter with the Department of Buildings is just a simple idea. You have to follow the blueprint. Life is best when we follow the blueprints that we're given. However, sometimes we follow bad blueprints in life. We're handed ways of relating to each other that we don't question. We just go with it. And in fact, if we take some time to reflect, those blueprints that we're following lead to so much chaos, breakdown, and heartache. The blueprint that we, many of us follow, is the blueprint that James is, is describing in these verses. The blueprint of favoritism. When we allow favoritism to infect our relationships, it leads to so much devastation. And it doesn't just stay private in just kind of a family situation off to the side. Actually, favoritism touches everything. Favoritism is why so many sibling and parental relationships are strained. Some of you are sitting, listening to this, and if you reflect just for a moment, for some of us, what would come up immediately is this pain we carry over the idea, the feeling, the experience of my parents favored my sibling over me. But it doesn't just stop there. Favoritism is why certain workplace dynamics are so toxic. Some of us are working in environments where it doesn't matter how much you work, how much you show up, you, how mu uh, the extra mile you go to in order to perform your responsibilities. You don't get the recognition. You're passed up for promotions. It's a toxic environment, yet other people have a different experience. Other people seem to be favored and seem to get things their way, and, and they're not held to the same standard as you. Favoritism affects our workplace. But we'll go further. Favoritism is actually at the heart of why, over the last 18 months, there was so much social unrest. Because essentially, so many of the protests that were happening were crying out and saying, there's two systems in this world. And there's one system that is disfavoring people of color. And we need to check that system because we can't allow a world to exist where there's two systems and one system favors certain people over the other. That's at the heart of so much civil unrest and why so many have raised their voices and said this needs to change because systems that favor some people over others are at the heart of so much brokenness in our world. Favoritism is also why people will choose to do good to certain people that they perceive they can gain something from them versus ignoring other people that there's no perceived benefit by serving them, by loving them. Favoritism is why the poor, the marginalized, the, the unpopular, people that are not influencers get ignored and tossed to the side 
favoritism is actually pervasive. And whenever we as people show favoritism, we actually are robbing people of the inherent dignity that God bestows to each and every person that is breathing on this earth. Why do we do this? So many reasons. Upbringing, the way uh, we've been treated, we, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, maybe it's, this is the only way we know how to relate to people. We don't question it. But God is challenging us, saying, regardless of this is happening in the world around you, this has no place in the life of the people of God. The world can function like this, but we are living by a different script, a different blueprint. We don't accept this as the status quo. We refuse to live in a world where favoritism elevates certain people above others, where people are ignored in the name of favoritism, where the vulnerable, the marginalized, are not given the love and the care, the respect, the dignity, and the powerful and, and the influential are given uh, just preferential treatment. We say as followers of Jesus, as we're really listening to what God is saying, is that that is not the world as it was intended to be. The way God intended the world to be is that every single person, regardless of their status, their wealth, their education, would be treated equally, fairly, with dignity, because all carry the image of God. As you can see, this is not just some kind of little you know, Bible study off to the side where it, that, that was a cute idea. No, this actually is a prevalent, destructive sin that doesn't just touch us religious people. It actually is pervasive and has infected all of society all around us. Right now, there's neighborhoods that are favored over others. Neighborhoods that have more police protection over others, have better schools over others. Right now, there's certain people in your life that if you reflect on, they're mistreated. They're not given enough care and love. They're not shown respect, while others actually have an incredibly easy ride comparatively. This cuts us personally. It influences society. And though the reasons are many, actually James cuts to the heart, opens us up, and shows us why favoritism is actually something that infiltrates the church. Why he's even addressing it to these people and why it's a concern for us is because we not only favor people, the truth is we have favorite sins. Look at what it says as we continue to read this chapter. See, the, it, this issue of favoritism isn't arbitrary or random. This wasn't just an isolated relational issue with these believers in Jesus. What we discover is that people show favoritism toward other people because we harbor favorite sins. Look at what verse 10 and verse 11 say. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In essence, what James is trying to argue there, he's trying to say that 
you keep the Ten Commandments because you have not murdered someone. But rather, he's saying you, you can't say that you keep the Ten Commandments because you didn't murder somebody, but yet you committed adultery. He's trying to show that for us to consider ourselves as, as obedient of the law, we have to obey all of it. And whenever we don't obey all of it, which none of us do, essentially it makes us all lawbreakers. But what this gets at is this idea of I obey certain commandments, I disobey others, but because I obey some, that's what I justify myself as being better than others. If we're honest, this shows up in our life in various ways. And one of the clearest way what James is talking about shows up is that many of us, we have a list. We have a list of certain sins that though we may on the surface agree that they're wrong, we don't weigh them as heavy as others. And typically what happens is we tend to judge people by the sins we don't commit. And so if we're not a liar, we tend to judge the liars pretty harshly. If we're not an adulterer, we tend to judge the adulterers pretty harshly. But what happens if someone were to judge us by the sins that we do commit? We typically don't judge people based on the sins that we are guilty of. We know we're standing on thin ice there. See, what happens is when we favor certain sins when we judge certain sins as higher than others or weightier than others, this actually is at the heart of why we end up favoring people. When we think that from God's perspective, if you abstain from this, you're a better person versus if you sin in this way, oh, God can't touch you, you're untouchable. That thinking actually is at the heart of why we end up allowing ourselves to favor certain people over the other. You, you and I may, may stand almost like disgusted at the idea that people would, in this text, would judge and mistreat people based on their appearance and what they're wearing. But for them, that was the standard they chose to judge people, to, to elevate some and, and, and dishonor others. But we do the same thing when it comes to sin. So often we will judge people based on a sin that we find to be reprehensible above others. And yet, we would protest if somebody were to judge us by our sins. Because inwardly, we don't think our sins are as bad. You know, normally, we want people, we want to judge people by their actions, but we want people to judge us by our motives. But that's not how it works. What James is saying is that if we're honest, we're all lawbreakers. None of us can stand guiltless before the command of God. None of us are, are truly holy in and of ourselves. We are desperately in need of grace. None of us can carry the full weight of all of God's commands. I remember being at a restaurant years ago and there was a young waiter. It was like his first time on the job and 
And he was doing so great. He was serving a big party. And at the end of the night, he's picking up way too much. She's trying to clear the table as fast as possible, trying to make his manager happy. As he picked up all these plates, we like a few of us said, hey, take your time, man. And he was like, no, no, I want to clear this table. Desserts are coming. And I could see it coming before it happened. As he walked away, all of a sudden, it was too much. It all fell. And, and I felt so terrible for him. And, and we helped the guy clean it up. And, and then, they, you know, it was, it was a big scene. But I remember that image of carrying so much, too much, and eventually it crashing. I thought, man, that's actually what it looks like for human beings to try to carry the full weight of God's commands, only to realize it's too heavy for any of us. We're going to crash. It's going to fall. And because it's going to fall, because it does fall, because we fall short, as the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Because of that, it actually exposes how heinous this sin of favoring certain sins over others are. Because if we're all guilty, if we all can sin, if we all have the propensity how dare we judge others for the sins they commit when we are just as vulnerable, culpable, and guilty? But if you and I don't check this motive of the heart where we favor certain sins over others, where we judge certain people over others, then you and I very easily can slip into the egregious favoritism that we're reading is happening at this church. This is a problem. I wish this was just a cute Bible story and we'd kind of sweep it under the rug and that's it. But actually, this affects our lives on too many levels. There's families that are ripped apart because of favoritism. Workplace dynamics, society, churches, places of worship are infected and impacted by this. I hope you can grasp the severity of it. But this is a sin that we radically need Jesus' help to deliver us from. And if we admit that, that this is a problem, the question arises, then what's the solution? Strangely enough, the solution from favoring certain people over others, from favoring certain sins more than others, is actually found in the favor of God. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The antidote to our tendency to favor certain sins over others, to favor certain people over others, is the constant recognition that despite our deep brokenness, God has favored us. When you and I let that penetrate the depths of our hearts, that the living God has favored you, has favored me, even though he had every reason not to. That on a continual daily basis, you and I never cease to give God reason to run away from us, to stop relationship with us. If the relationship was based on our performance, if we had to earn God's love, this relationship would cease to exist in an instant, 
But the good news of Jesus is that we are not in this relationship based on effort or earning or trying or performing. We don't earn our seat at God's table. The table has been set for us, and though we're broken, though we're lawbreakers, though we sin in ways that are, are unimaginable, that, that if people really knew what the depths of our brokenness, man, would they judge us? Yet God fully knows our brokenness and says, you're my child. I've made a way for you to experience my love through grace. You don't earn this, and it's the cross of my son. When God's favor deeply penetrates our hearts over and over and over again, we come to realize the idea of favoring certain sins over others is foolishness. Because God has favored us despite our brokenness. And when the radical grace of God, the unconditionality of God's love, and the universality of God's love, God loves every single person, and he loves us regardless of what we do. When that penetrates us, it gives us a new lens through which we see society and realize how could we ever be comfortable in a world and relationships around us where people are favored above others when God has favored us despite our brokenness. All of a sudden we realize that person that's being dishonored, disfavored, that's me. But for the grace of God, I'm that person that is being dishonored and being marginalized. But God has called me son and daughter. And by because of that redemptive experience that we have in Jesus, it reframes how we see these things in our society and all around us. We refuse to accept favoritism in its negative, demonic, destructive ways all around us because we've experienced favor from God. Rescued people, rescue people. And it's this favor from Jesus that changes everything. I want to invite you, if you would stand, and if we would just have a moment of prayer at this time. I'm praying that as we've spent time in Scripture this morning, that the Lord has clearly spoken to us, and that there's things that the Holy Spirit has brought up. And as He's bringing these things, He's not bringing these things up to shame you, to judge you. He's bringing these things up to free you, to deliver you, to cleanse you. Are there people that you've shown favoritism to? Or have you have been the victim of favoritism? Maybe this is a moment of confession and healing. If that's what's percolating in your soul, bring that before God as we prepare to pray. Or... Do you feel conviction around favoring certain sins over others? How easy it is to judge people out there or even in our church or in your family for sins they're committing and yet overlook the ones that you're committing. The only way we can be delivered of these tendencies is to receive the favor of God. To know right now in your brokenness, one, to admit your brokenness, and to receive God's love that penetrates us despite our sin and welcomes us into his family, not on any basis of our performance or our effort or merit, but purely on grace. You will never earn God's love. You'll never deserve it. It will be a continuous gift and how liberating that is. But a standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, pray you would meet us even now. 
speak to us, set us free. As you're convicting us, as we confess, would you deliver us, Lord? And would you set our hearts right? Lord, would you set us free from favoritism, from being partial, from judging? And Lord, may we receive afresh the good news of your Son, that you have favored us despite how unfavorable we are. God, in Jesus' name, amen. As you're gathered, as you're standing, let's worship God at this time.